Years ago, I was uh, speaking at a conference, and Susan and I um, had the, this was in Newfoundland, and Susan and I had the opportunity to watch the sunrise at Signal Hill, which is the easternmost point of North America. And we got up early in the morning, and in fact, we thought we'd missed it because there was so much light in the sky. And so we raced to Signal Hill, and we got to the lighthouse, and we went around the other side, and we sat right at the edge of the cliff so that we were certain we were the most easternly uh, you know, two bodies in, on North America on the side of this uh, lighthouse watching the, waiting for the sun to come up. And when the sun crested over the ocean, it was awesome. It was great. It was a, just a really, really fun memory for us. And our text this morning is Luke chapter 2, the birth narrative of Christ, which just cracks open the New Testament like the light shattering the darkness, this announcement of the birth of our Savior. This is the fourth week of Advent, and, and we've been looking at our need and God's promise and His plan, and this morning we're going to look at the announcement. The God of the Bible has written clues of His existence into both the universe through nature and through knowledge uh, in our souls. And this is why psychologically we crave meaning and love and purpose and there's got to be something more. As Ecclesiastes 3 says, he's written eternity in our hearts. The human soul has a knowledge of God, though many of us suppress that knowledge. Romans 1 says we have a knowledge of God. But also, God writing the clues of his existence into the universe is why if we explore this world in which we live both on macro scales and micro scales, we're just met over and over with mind-boggling precision and design and intention. And this text in Luke 2, on the fourth week of Advent, this goes beyond just God writing clues of his existence in the cosmos, clues of his existence in the yearnings of this human soul. This is God writing his existence into human history. This is God, the creator, writing himself into the narrative of his creation by arriving in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, he was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom his favor rests. When the angels went away from them to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it marveled at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. For they had all heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is God's word. This this text is not nostalgic, sentimental imagery. It's not myth or legend or metaphorical poetry. This text is history. If you can put the text back up on the screen for me, if you look at verse 1, you'll see here that it references Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius, and he was given the title Caesar by Augustus in Rome in 27 BC. That's where we are in world history. Rome assigns a Doc Ock and... So this is not just a theological claim, this is a historical claim. And God incarnating himself into human history, the creator writing himself into his own work of creation, that's not normal. And before we get into this text, I just want to take a few minutes to get you to think about how the fact that Christmas is not normal. Because Christmas has become very normal, extremely normal. Going to the mall, that's normal. Rushing through a crowded parking lot and going in and picking up gifts, normal. Blowout sales, baking, normal. Parties, ugly sweaters, all fun, all normal. Ordering things online, click to add to cart, something else shows up at your door, normal. Nothing could be more normal. It's all normal. But when God invades our space, in an act that declares our space is actually his space, that's not normal. In fact, not only is it not normal, but it's infinitely interesting. I don't know that there's anything more interesting. And so, as we look at this, what has God done? It's majestic. In verse 4, it says that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, in the Hebrew, Bethlehem, is... The house of bread. That's what it means. And it's fitting because, of course, in the book of John, Jesus refers to himself as bread, the bread of life. And not only this, but that there's this beautiful image of him nourishing and strengthening us and sustaining us. And after the service, after the sermon, we will eat the bread. And he's born in this small, obscure village. It wasn't always obscure. It was the birthplace of King David. Micah chapter 5, it's prophesied to be the birthplace of King Jesus. Bethlehem is also the location in the Old Testament. Some of you will remember where David was anointed. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a Greek word which means anointed. Christos, the anointed one. So it was prophesied 700 years earlier that he would be born in this place. And of course, Christ fulfilled many, many, many prophecies. And the historical Jesus could not possibly just be a nice guy who went around caring for the poor 
and fulfilling prophecies as best he could because there's one prophecy you certainly can't fulfill and that's determining where you're going to be born. And that's where this all begins and takes place. Verse 7, we're given this image that is really familiar, whether you've been in church your whole life or you're new to Christian faith. The image of Mary and Joseph, uh, you know, looking for rest and there's no room for them in the inn. And I just want to point something out here that I hope, hope is, is meaningful. Um, because sometimes, if you've grown up in church like I have, this image of there being no room for them in the end, it kind of gets ruined a little bit through um, Christmas plays with distracting costumes, styrofoam props, obvious felt beards. I remember one year, Mrs. Pinkston, who was the organist at my church, came out singing in a pink bathrobe, an image that I will carry for the rest of my natural life. And sometimes when you're in church for a while and you experience things that sort of familiarize this thing that is otherworldly and majestic, things can get lost. All I want to point out in verse 7 is that uh, this word for in in the Greek, there's two words actually that could be used. One uh, Greek word would be pendokien, and that's not the word that's here. Pendokien means a public place you go, you pay money, you stay. The delta. That's Pendakian. There was no room for them at the delta, but the text does not say there was no room for them at the Pendakian. The text says there was no room for them at the Cataluma. And Cataluma is a small room in ancient Palestinian homes, which is still in many homes in the Middle East today. A small room where your guests, where your family could stay. You just set up this place. That was called the Cataluma. And a traveler could stay there. And in, in, uh, in Eastern cultures, you could stay as long as you wanted. It was like a hospitable situation. And that's where you stayed. So what the text is giving us is not that there was no room for them at the Delta, but that there was a place reserved in the home for family when they're traveling. And the rejection of Jesus began in the womb. Because they show up and there's no room for them because there's already family. But you've got this young pregnant woman and the family's like, yeah, no, there's... There's no room for you here. We do have a spot, and it's the front of a house, uh, the manger, where at night they would bring, you know, most homes at that point um, were one-room homes, and then they had a kind of a living area, and then they had a, a, a piece of rock hewn out into the ground, and that's where the hay was, and that, the animals, you bring them in at night to keep them away from predators, and everybody was kind of in there. If you, some of you have done some travel, you might have seen homes like that. I've been in homes like that. They bring the animals in at night, and you're all together. So this is what the family did. Is they said, yeah, no, we don't have any room for you. You can go over here. Not a very sanitary place to have a baby. But of course, the rejection of Christ didn't begin on the cross. Didn't begin on the road to Calvary. It even begins here. What he was willing to go through to be forsaken so that you and I could be forgiven and brought in. It's amazing. And so, the, this announcement is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. As... This all sets the stage for the sky cracking open and the divine appearing to these lowly shepherds. So I want us to look at this announcement this morning and really meditate on three things. How this announcement of glory and peace describes our need and Christ's mission and our message. But first let's look at our need. How does this announcement of glory and peace describe our need? 
The announcement is glory to God in the highest. Because that's where glory belongs. To God in the highest. But as a human race, we've made many other things to be in the highest. And so this describes our need because since Eden, because we've refused to glory to God in the highest, and we've made self-rule the highest since Genesis 3, all manner of problems, the driving force under every unloving act in the world is a result of not glorying in God in the highest. It's a result of me and my self-rule and my truth and my desires and my appetites and what I want being highest. And so, our problem with glory is also why we have a problem with peace. Because if you glory in your rule, your way, your views, your life, and that's highest, that is not a life of peace. Because something is always threatening your glory, your rule, your way, your views, your life. And so historically and globally speaking, when we look at how superpowers have risen and fallen and nations have, you know, left their borders to go and take that which is not theirs from other places, and we look at this bloody human history of ours, globally and culturally, we find that glorying in the wrong thing in the highest has not led to peace. And this has been a problem since the beginning. Something is always threatening our peace. Something is threatening to take away that thing that we've put highest. And so if you're a political power, you put a standing army in place to protect the things that you've made highest. But you and I as individuals, we don't have standing armies, so we find other things, other ways to fight for whatever it is that we've made highest. Our glory problem has created a peace problem. And ultimately because God has not been highest. And something will drain the peace, like a small toddler putting something in the toilet willy-nilly and flushing it down. This is the world that we live in. Something can go sideways and steal all our peace. The only way to keep peace is to keep control. And that, of course, never ends well. And so this glory problem is a peace problem because we're always grasping at the wrong thing. It's the Christmas season. You probably watch lots of Christmas holiday specials, or maybe you're going to do some of that this week. 1965, Charles Schultz drops the Charlie Brown Christmas special, classic, in which he's got Linus, this one prime character who's constantly gripping his security blanket in every scene uh, at that one point in the Charlie Brown Christmas special when Charlie Brown says, can somebody tell me what Christmas is all about? And then they read Luke chapter 2, this exact text that I just read to you. Linus reads it, but before Linus reads it, Linus does something Linus never does, and he drops his security blanket. And you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and there goes the security blanket as Linus preaches Luke chapter 2. We all have our security blankets that we're gripping to, whatever that thing is that's in the highest, whatever that thing is that we're clamoring for to keep peace in our own souls. It's the security blanket that the gospel is inviting us to draw. And Jesus has come to give us peace with God so that facing anything, we can be sustained by the peace of God, so that we're no longer held hostage by circumstances. We're not held hostage by anything that we've put in the highest, because we can glory in our God in the highest. This has always been a pertinent text, but I think it's pertinent now when we, when we wake up every morning and check the news feed and say, what's going on? 
Now, m- many of us are not checking it daily anymore, but whenever it is that we choose to check it, to say, okay, I should publicly take a peek. It's never been so important, I don't think, in our natural lifetime that before we do that, we can say, glory to God in the highest. Because whatever I'm about to read, whatever somebody decided, they're not my king. I already have a king. And my life is well in his hands. Let's see what's going on in this world. Now, Jesus said, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. So, glory and peace, it describes our need. We've got a glory problem, we've got a need problem. But it also describes Christ's mission. So let's just stare at this announcement a little more. Verse 14, I want you to look at it. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom his favor rests. Lots of different translations, but I went back to the Greek and, and uh, grabbed, grabbed this one. And, you know, I'm, the only reason I'm saying this is you've been in, some of you have been in church your whole life, and we read these texts, and you've heard them since you're children, and it's easy to glaze over them. So I just want to give you the Greek this morning. Um, like I say all the time, you don't need it. The English is sufficient. But sometimes you just need a little bit of spice on there to just catch your attention. And I hope that's what happens right now for all of you. Here's what it is in the Greek. And I want to focus on the, the peace among those on whom his favor rests. It says, Irene and Anthrope. Irene is peace, and Anthrope sounds like an- anthropic, anthropology. It's where we get our English word human, humanity. So it says, peace to humanity. Irene and Anthrope. Irene and Anthrope. Peace among all the humans. And then, it says, and then the next word is, in the English it says, on whom his favor rests, which in Greek is just one word, iodikias. Iodikias means pleasure and satisfaction and desire and five stars and two enthusiastic thumbs up. That's what that word means. Endokias. So, it says, so the, the message is glory to God in the highest, and peace and rene ren, and to all the anthropias, all the humans, who, this is the qualifier now, who please God, who satisfy God, who fulfill God in a five stars, two thumbs up satisfactory way. That's who gets the peace. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but nobody's doing that. Nobody has ever satisfied God that way. I don't know if you've read the New Testament. But we're constantly called to emulate Christ precisely because we don't emulate God that way. This is the good news that comes. Peace to those on whom God has favor and satisfaction and is fully pleased. How in the world is that possible? How can a holy God promise peace to undeserving sinners? He can do it because he is coming in grace to die for undeserving sinners. What I want you to see about this announcement is it's not, only, it's not only announcing Christ's birth, it's predicting the need for his death. How's anybody going to get peace? How is this good news to anyone? Why have these shepherds not been instantly vaporized? 
It's because God is coming to do what we could not do for ourselves. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is the wonder of Christmas. This is the announcement, not only of Christ's birth, but predicting the reason for his death. We're not born wanting to glory to God in the highest. We're all born wanting to act as God and glory in ourselves in the highest. And peace on earth is only to those on whom his favor rests. So how in the world can we who are holy garner the favor of the one who is holy? Christ came to do what we could not do, to get God's favor to rest on you, to make us holy. United to Christ, praise God. United to Christ by faith and grace. He is well pleased. That's the criteria for his peace. He is well pleased. United to Christ, his favor does rest on us. United to Christ, he who... We are united to the one who is holy. And so now, from sheer freedom, we put off our sin. We lay aside our sin. We confess our sin. We desire to live to the obedience and emulate the one who is holy. We desire to live out the new anthropos, the new humanity. That's the word that keeps showing up all through the New, the new Testament. Putting off the old anthropos and putting on the new anthropos. Put off the old way of living, the old humanity. Put on the new way of humanity. And we can do this from joy Because Christ has done it all. Because he has come and done what we could never do. When you look at verse 12, it says that these shepherds were given a sign, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. You know, they they saw the gospel. Because what they saw was, they saw this image of the innocent Christ, wrapped in strips of linen, laying on a stone. That's what the manger was. A hewn out chunk of stone. That's what most ancient world mangers look like. So here you've got the innocent Christ wrapped in linen, laying on a stone. They're looking at, well, there's no way they could have conceived this, but what you and I now look back on and go, you know, the gift of God's grace ended up after the cross in a tomb, wrapped in linen cloths, laying on a stone. This is the sign to the shepherds. The grace of the one who would come and take away our sin. The one who would come and unite us to our God so that we could say glory to God in the highest and enjoy peace with him on whom his favor rests because of the great grace of Christ. Which leads to the final thing this morning. Glory and peace, it describes our need. It describes Christ's mission. And here's how it describes our message. The most important event of all time containing the greatest news of all time, given to the most underwhelming, undeserving audience of all time. This is a handful of shepherds on night shift. They're not even looking for Jesus. The Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 25b, describes shepherds at that time like this. They are dishonest. They were unclean outcasts. They didn't have anything nice to say about shepherds. Now, if you go back a thousand years earlier, there was great dignity in being a shepherd, you know, King David being a shepherd and, and caring for your, your family's um, sheep as a shepherd. And there's that aspect of dignity as a shepherd. But that's not what's going on here. At this point in uh, history, as people were often, you know, sort of farming, you didn't have a, you didn't have a shepherd who was going to die for their sheep. They were like, uh, I'm out of here. I'm making minimum wage and I'm not fighting off that hyena. Thank you very much. And so here you've got these... According to the culture, this ragtag group of dishonest, unclean outcasts, and they're the ones 
that are given this message. And the first words to them in verse 10 are, fear not. When really what they deserved was, fear this. Just like you and I. You and I didn't deserve fear not. We deserve fear this. The world in which we live, the city, the culture, they don't deserve fear not. They deserve fear this. But what do we all get when we turn to the wonder of the gospel? We get fear not. You know, we have to see ourselves in these shepherds. This is our message. Their message was our message. We are the ragamuffins on the hillside. Right? We are the ones who are unable to find the peace, unable to get the favor. Impossible. We needed someone to garner the peace and the favor for us. And so when we see ourselves as the ragamuffins on the hillside, that just changes the posture in which we see ourselves as ministers in this city to all the other ragamuffin, <laughs> ragamuffins on the hillside. Because it postures us to see the gospel pattern. God sought them in grace. They weren't looking for him. Then in turn, they sought Jesus. And then they responded to grace and worship. Quite often, you and I feel unqualified to go into the city and give a defense for our faith and be bold and preach Christ and share the gospel. Quite often, we feel unqualified to do that. Because then you've got to get into the divine stuff. See, then you've got to get into what Christianity is at, about at the core. The strange and mystic things of Christmas, the God who became man. And sometimes we can feel quite unqualified to do that. But there's good news here. The power of the gospel is not in the messengers. Clearly, the power of the gospel is in the message. God used the stammering lips of those shepherds, and may he use the stammering lips of this church. And I close with this. In verses 17 and 18... It says that when the shepherds saw it, they made known everything that had been told to them concerning the Christ child. And all who heard it marveled at these shepherds. And I want that to encourage you in your ministry in this city. I want that to encourage you as there are opportunities for you to share the gospel or as you make opportunities to share the gospel. I want this to encourage you that they marveled at these shepherds. Because God chose... Not to send the angelic host to hover above the, the temple and crack the sky open during a Sanhedrin meeting and blow everybody away as hosts of rabbis-to-be were memorizing diligently the entire Pentateuch. There were lots of choices with whom to crack the sky open and reveal the gospel to, but this is who God chooses to give it to. He chose this group of Tatterdamalian sheep watchers. And this should inspire us with hope. They were the ones he chose to spread the word that the king had come. You and I are the ones that God has chosen in this city to give the good news that the king has come. God's gift of grace wrapped in swaddling cloths in the manger would soon later, 33 later, years later, be unwrapped in the grave cloths, the empty tomb. Hope was announced and angels sang and the undeserving were blown away. Because God's grace has come. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.